This is Melissa Agnes, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? Famous words. I know, right? I I unashamedly (laughs) stole them from our mutual friend, Mitch, but uh, I I went on his podcast, apologized, and he gave me permission to keep going, so we're okay with it. Awesome. You know what? When I started my podcast, I I was so tempted just because he nails it with those two, three words. Um, So my name is Melissa Agnes, and I am a crisis management strategist and keynote speaker. Okay, so that was uh, awesome and succinct. And let's talk about it. Let's unpack this. Um, you know, I'll be honest. I think a lot of people's first um, misperceptions, I guess, when they think about or hear crisis management, et cetera, is that we're thinking about natural disasters, forest fires, floods, outbreaks of, of the Zika virus, which I know that you've talked a little bit about that sort of last one. But the truth is, I think one of the big problems, one of the reasons we need help understanding how to react properly to a crisis is that a lot of leaders don't know they're in one until they do something stupid and make it a whole lot worse. Or that- yeah, or unless they there's actually something and they're maybe not just they did something stupid as from leadership, but just the organization is being, you know, pummeled by the media and reputation equity is going down and, you know, share price is going down and all of a sudden they're going, okay, what do we do now? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think about, so there are, there are certain times, you're, you're totally right, there are certain times where it's sort of obvious, right? So the BP oil spill, it's obvious that there is a crisis. There is both a legitimate environmental crisis and then also a PR crisis. And of course, we don't do ourselves any favors by saying no one wants to go back to their normal life than me. Um, but, but, you know, I think that's part of it. It's part of it just that a lot of times when there is... A, an operational crisis, a situation with a flawed product, or you know, in the case of um, BP, and uh, a huge environmental um, crisis, is it not realizing that almost any kind of negative thing also comes with a PR crisis? I'm not a big, huge fan of the term PR crisis, but and I could explain why. I think it's just siloed, and then we only think PR. Kind of to your point earlier, where we think crisis, we think natural disaster, we think PR crisis, we think you know, these bluffs that may not have actual serious impact long-term on the business. But there's there's certainly, I mean, you can have any type of incident that is, you know, a crisis that 
yeah, can stem from any which way and can lead to basically what you want to identify is that you're, you know, is this going to have potential long-term negative impact on the business or its reputation in some capacity? And just to go back to that PR crisis thing, most I'm using quotations, PR crises are issues. They're kind of like issues that go viral that don't necessarily have that or threaten to have that long-term impact, negative impact on the business. Whereas every crisis will have that PR or that human factor, that kind of, that viral media attention, um, emotional, emotional impact while simultaneously also having the actual incident that's gone wrong that needs to be managed. Hmm. So, I mean, I, uh, let me, let's unpack this then. I think that carries with it this idea that often sort of the first lesson, and I, I actually don't know the first lesson, so if I'm wrong, correct me, may actually be just kind of realizing when you're about to hit one. Not just realizing when you're about to hit one, but step back from that and actually sit down and identify the organization's top high-risk scenarios. So you mentioned natural disaster. Natural disaster usually fits into the top 10, but it's certainly not the top three, for example. Whereas we'd look at cybersecurity or perhaps a key man event or an on-site industrial accident where there's an explosion and people have been injured or, or, or you know, died. Um, so yeah, just to step back and say, not just detect when it's happening, but to understand what the, what the pertinent and most impactful and realistic risks are. And then from there to say, okay, what would, what would bring each one of these incidents to crisis level where the executive team is now getting involved to a very deep capacity and it's no longer business as usual. When you've done that, then it's easier to detect when something has happened, when it's not as evident as an explosion, for example. Hmm. So, so really, it's kind of uh, I. It's kind of funny. We're we're beginning with the practical tips for avoiding it, as opposed as opposed to diving in. You've already cut all. You've already given me the amazing answer to to one of my questions, which is how do we prep for it? Which you just sort of said. It seems. That, I mean, I I actually hear a lot of what a lot of times we call the pre mortem in that. I mean, normally pre mortem is sort of like we tried this to launch this new product and it failed, but this is a, a, essentially that same thing. What are the things in which that will you know, take us towards failure. And then how, how would they grow to the point? I love what you said there to where it's not business as usual, which is really um, probably a big indicator that, that now it's, if it's not business as usual, it's time to not act like it is and actually respond to this thing. Yeah. And it's funny because a lot of times organizations that aren't prepared haven't really thought it through in advance. And you know, one of the things about thinking it through in advance is that you have the luxury of being comprehensive and thoughtful Whereas in the heat of the moment, you don't, first of all, it's emotional no matter what, because you're dealing with a crisis and emotions are running high and stress levels are high. So you can't give it that thought. And not to mention that your stakeholders expect, hey, there's this expectation of real time, consistent communication that doesn't give you the luxury of time either. But that business as usual comment that you just made, it's funny how often a crisis response, an immediate crisis response, you know, the crisis has happened. And one of the first responses from the organization is basically, I'm paraphrasing, but don't worry, we're still operating as business as usual. Whereas everybody else is going, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> You're not, you can't be. So what are you hiding from us? Hmm. I, oh, that's a, I think that's an, uh, an awesome point. And it kind of takes my 
it kind of takes my mind to Wells Fargo, which is probably one of the bigger uh, things, at least right now, that people are thinking of, which is, I think, a wonderful example of sort of like, we got this initial, okay, things look bad. And then I don't know that they outright said, don't worry, it's business as usual. But it certainly didn't seem like they were being fully forthright with everything that was going on. And the situation just kept getting worse as it was being updated in real time. You want to know my assessment of the Wells Fargo crisis management? I would love I find, to. <laughs> I find, I think that this one is extremely, I thought it was just interesting as I was watching it unfold and predicting, you know, here's what they just did. Here's my prediction for what's going to happen and then watch that happen and then see their reaction, kind of the domino effect that, that occurred for me, just, you know, as an observer and the thing with the Wells Fargo crisis is that it was a crisis of culture. They had a, they had, their culture was off. The corporate culture was off. It was a, a crisis that stemmed right down to the fundamentals of the of the corporate culture of the incentivizations that you know the CEO was giving to management and and trickling down from there, and yet. When you watch their crisis management from a tactical strategic point of view, they did everything almost perfectly. It was it was a beautiful execution and attempt <laughs> at a crisis response. I mean, they said all the right things. For example, you know, the CEO was, you know, kept saying I'm hold I am I'm accountable, I'm holding myself accountable, and yet so they said all the right things, but they never acted the right way. So they, you know, you know, that, um, that expression that talk is cheap and actions speak louder than words. This was exactly that they were trying to kind of, honestly, what they were trying to do, the CEO, my perspective, I mean, I don't, I haven't spoken to anybody yet within the organization about it, but my perspective from watching was that the CEO was trying to do everything so that he wouldn't lose his job. He tried everything except that. Well, I mean, until he did, until he had no choice but to resign. And it just doesn't work that way. When it's a crisis of corporate culture, the only way to start managing it is to fix the culture. And that starts from the top down. So I don't know. I just thought, I mean, they took out ads in the paper. They were proactive. They had this great, um, you know, thought out communication execution strategy. So leveraging their website and banner ads going to the right page. And just like the tactical strategy was beautiful, but the fundamentals were completely off and it just, and so therefore it didn't work. And so, I mean, I, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, well, but had they actually done uh, the, the exercise you would describe right at the, right off the top, this idea of like what are what are our vulnerabilities? Well, you know, we have this thing because because I, I can't I can't believe that they didn't know ahead. Of, I mean, it's sort of like I mean I, maybe maybe they did maybe they did, but it's sort of like after you watch the movie or read the book The Big Short, you suddenly are amazed that no one took the time to go. Okay, what would it take to bring the entire system down? And then what are the what are the signs of that? Are those signs happening? Oh no, that like that that uh, only a few people actually did that versus these sort of senior leaders. So it's one of those weird things, like you said, it, it is a, a culture crisis. But it's hard to it's hard to believe that they didn't know at some level that they had that cultural issue. So it's it's either it's one of two things. It's either they didn't know, or 
they didn't, like you kind of said, like you said, they didn't take the time to assess um, and and figure it out. Like, but so either way, they were in the wrong, and it just comes down to it just comes down to that culture. And I think it's interesting too because I'm always talking about. And the work that I do with my clients is all about implementing what I call a crisis-ready corporate culture. So to see a crisis of culture, it just, they did everything exactly wrong. Hmm. (laughs) And even in their response strategy in managing the crisis, again, I think that had it not been such a severe scandal, and we were talking about fraud, so had it not been to that level of severity, they would have been deemed to have had a beautiful crisis response because again their execution strategy i mean they worked i don't know who they worked with but they worked with somebody who knew what they were doing and in my opinion probably what happened was you know they 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 worked with somebody who knew what they were doing but the ultimate decision and action item that they needed to do was rearrange management you know take take the ceo out and address that issue and then refocus on rebuilding the culture, strengthening the culture and um, fixing gaps and weaknesses and just really changing the wrongs that had been being done. Um, I just think it's a fascinating story because it's like on one hand, the execution strategy was textbook, new textbook, not old textbook, new textbook, the textbook that I would write. And then on the other hand, you just had the fundamentals that were so wrong. It didn't matter what they tried to do because it came down to they needed to fix the culture. Hmm. So, all right, uh, the textbook you would write, I'll, I'll push back on that a bit because yours would be more about being crisis ready than just sort of responding. Yes. And I, and yes. I, you know, when I see at a deeper level what you mean when you say why, why you don't like to ever just think of it as sort of a PR crisis because perfect execution on the PR side and you wonder if their strategy was just do everything right on the PR side and sort of wait it out, which which kind of brings me to an interesting question. On some level, do you think what causes these, you know, the, the spectacular failures, but even the, the smaller scale ones that sort of go under the radar, but are certainly a crisis for that organization? Do you think some of it is just that we think in, oh, it's such a short news cycle, let's just hunker down and survive it. And then we don't actually need to make those fundamental changes. I think that there is a, there's certainly that's certainly a mindset that exists. I won't, I won't say that everybody has it, but I will say that I see it often. And it goes back to even before the news cycle was so fast the way that it is today and changes so quickly, it went to the fact that before you could get away with no comment because nobody was there to publicly call you out on it and demand more. And yet now with social media, mobile tech, and just, you know, Google search and all of this dig- these digital factors, people today, there's a lot of executives who kind of fall back on that previous default where they say, you know, it worked for us in the past. And so it'll work for us again in the future. And every time they, that is attempted in a real crisis, not in an issue, but in a real crisis, it just bites them. And it just means that it's going to be longer for them to respond appropriately and, you know, meeting the expectations of those who matter most to their business. So the longer you wait, the more control you lose, the more reputation damage and bottom line damage you incur. And yet it's inevitable that you have to respond. We see it all the time. So, so yes, 
And I think it just, it dates back a long time. And, uh, and when you see it, it's, it's just, it's, I guess, interesting to watch because you know, it's going to come, you know, they're going to have to switch their strategy and, and, you know, actually communicate (laughs) effectively. Yeah. So on, on that note, especially communicate effectively, communicate honestly enough, transparently, transparently enough. You sort of, um, in a, in a piece, I think it was a YouTube video that you did hit the, um, hit the nail on the head with what I think is sort of like the perfect storm for a crisis that just hasn't happened yet. And at least from the outside, it seems like no one is talking about this. So I, so I travel a lot and I'm also a Mac fanboy. Right. So when the iPhone 7 came out, I got a, a pretty generous ribbing from all of my Samsung Galaxy friends about how much better their Note 7 was than my iPhone 7 and how I still wasn't up to date, etc. Um, and then all of their phones started lighting on fire. Right. And I remember um, the very first time I was traveling after this sort of the initial word started to spread. It was, if I remember right, it was, it was, uh, the airline was literally saying, you cannot have this on the plane. Power down wasn't even an issue. It was, you cannot have it on the plane. And then it sort of pivoted. Maybe they cut a deal in a back room. I don't know. But it sort of pivoted like, oh, well, you just have to like power it down. But the first flight I ever took, they literally collected them and had them up front by the flight attendants in case anything happened because they were so worried about these things spontaneously combusting what's going on here? And it seems like no one's talking about it transparently enough or descriptive enough. And it, all it's going to take is one fire on some airplane somewhere in the world for this to be huge immediately. If I'm not mistaken, I think there was, but it wasn't in the air. It was still in the tarmac. I have to go back. I kind of like getting a, a brain freeze where I'm thinking, wasn't there a story about that? And, you know, it's funny because I was I was talking about Samsung and this whole crisis and Samsung's response. And I think what's interesting about Samsung's initial response to this crisis was that uh, mostly we see organizations that, you know, they take their time to respond and they take their time so much that they lose even more control and a lot of speculation and rumors and sensationalization by the media and all this happens as a result. Samsung was the opposite. Samsung at the onset, the initial onset of the crisis, they were so quick to respond. They were too quick to respond that they ended up sticking their foot foot in their mouth because they had to then retract statements, correct statements. Um, They got in trouble with regulatory agencies because when you're doing a recall in the US, you have to actually work with, for example, the SEC and do that in collaboration with them. And they kind of just jumped the gun. So they had like these great intentions of communication and transparency and hitting the notes of, you know, our customers, we don't even care about the bottom line. It's about our customers and their safety. And that's all that matters to us. And then it, that, that is actually what bit them in, you know, bit them <laughs> um, a few days later when they had to go and correct all kinds of statements and that caused so much confusion and regulatory um, action or or unhappiness from regulatory agencies that they could have mitigated. But I do remember sitting on my flight from, I was coming home, I think from Boston and I was on an Air Canada flight and I had already reported on, well, not reported on this, I'm not a reporter, but I had already, you know, done a video about it. I blogged about it. I think I had written on Forbes about it. And then I'm on a plane and the flight attendant is saying, power down your Samsung devices, like as if it's nothing. And I, it finally hit me. I was like, oh my God, what if there's an, a fire mid-flight and I'm actually on this plane? 
which prompted me to then have this whole discussion around, you know, are they being transparent enough? Are they, are they, you know, there's this delicate balance from the airline's perspective of not kind of sensationalizing, let's say, or, you know, you don't want to cause panic for sure. And you also don't want to put an irrational fear or anything in people and you don't want to upset Samsung. But at the same time, do people actually listen to the flight attendant when he or she is making those announcements? And are they actually going to pay attention to the fact that, you know, they were just asked to power down their Samsung devices? So it was, it was definitely an interesting case study. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of reminds me of you, you see this um, often, you know, you, you were saying companies often are slow to respond. Samsung was actually fast to respond. And then you also have this play to go with, you know, in the U.S. and the federal government, the FAA. F, I think I added an extra A there. But FAA being, um, in, they were quick to respond with their regulation, but it seemed like slow to respond with the explanation of why it's going on, why it suddenly changed from from this whole thing. I mean, I, my mind went back to kind of how um, how obnoxious it was to even get the ability to turn your phone back on but in airplane mode and then later in like um wi-fi mode to to watch movies and all that sort of stuff you i mean you remember this years ago when we've you travel enough to remember that every time we get a little bit of electronic freedom it's a huge deal um to, to us frequent travelers but it seems like some of this is the tension between business and, and government and there being sort of two different news cycles for those people not not news but you know what i mean and how quickly they respond yeah uh yeah there is. I mean, there's no denying. However, and then, so I work a lot with government as well, and or the public sector, we could say, and they're, they have this struggle, but, but they're getting better. They are. And if we look at, for example, I, I love Boston PD as an example. I mean, and before at the onset of this conversation, you were talking about, you know, natural disasters or different types of events that we don't necessarily think corporate crisis. Well, Boston Marathon bombing, which was uh, many years ago now. I mean, Boston PD was so quick to talk, so quick to communicate and activate their social media channels and their means, of, their appropriate means of communication that they actually managed to position themselves as the source of credible information throughout the management of that crisis to the point that the media would not publish anything before confirming, confirming it on their channels. So government kind of goes at their own pace and regulatory agencies and all that, but they there are some that just really get it. Hmm. You know, another one that I'm thinking of that, that really gets it, and I, re I remember this actually because as an American, when I heard this story months after it happened, I couldn't believe it, but was um, the example of in, in Calgary, um, Mayor Nenshi, uh, Nahid Nenshi, mm. and how like during the Calgary floods, he was everywhere. No, I mean, not, not just everywhere, not just often on social media, but like it seemed like he was checking in from literally everywhere too. That is, I love that you just, that you even know about that as an American. I have a really good, um, I know, sorry. I have a really good friend know, who's based out of Calgary, so that's part of the reason. But come on, everybody's paying, to, paying attention to they, Canada right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but this is a couple of years ago. But you're right. This was a beautiful, and actually to give a little bit more context there. So there were these massive, um, floods back then and it wasn't just the city of calgary but it was the surrounding cities as well and as a result of calgary's communications effective communications um they were the only city at the time that did not have any fatalities as a result of the floods so just to show like the level of communication 
And there was, and it's not just the mayor, there was a police officer. So just kind of show all of the uh, emergency responders. Cal, uh, I don't remember what account it was, but I guess let's just say it was the city's account or the uh, Calgary PD's account. But whatever account it was, was tweeting so much, so frequently that they actually got locked into Twitter jail, which is a thing. Uh, if you tweet too much, you get frozen out of your account for X amount of hours and you can't re you can't put it back up until Twitter realizes that you're not spam and puts you back up themselves. Um, and yet, and so most, especially emergency responders and government agencies would be like, okay, what do we do now? We, I don't know. What do we do now? Whereas this one police officer, the second it happened almost just intuitively went, doesn't matter. We're using the right hashtags, jumped onto their own personal Twitter account, kept using the right hashtags that everybody was following and as a result, nobody, there was no skipped beat. The communications just continued to be seamless and effective. So it's a great example. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I think it, it's funny because it speaks to it, it would be so easy to get into a conversation about how in an age of social media, people are talking faster than you can respond through your sort of traditional channels. And then, like you said, just to kind of, um, you know, slam companies that don't go fast enough or governments that don't go fast enough. But I think it's worth worth saying that this is also an asset because like the Boston PD or or like the city of Calgary, you can you can use this asset to communicate fast enough if you want to. I feel like so often we think about it if through this lens of like, you know, like um, John Ronson has that book, How Does How to So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which is essentially all about what to do if Twitter hates you. Um, but at the same time, there's this idea that you can be as fast and furious and transparent as they're kind of demanding of you. So we have, we have, you know, there's so many challenges and you're nailing it. We have so many challenges right now that work against us in a crisis. And yet, if you put that thought into it beforehand, if you, you know, implement this crisis ready culture and you have a program that's just scalable and that goes across every department and you have your teams that are trained and you understand who your stakeholders are and the mediums that they are leveraging and they're using and where they would intuitively go to if they heard that your organization was in crisis and they're an investor or they're a customer or they're you know member of the board or whatever it may be if we understand where they're going to instinctively go are they going to go to your website are they going to go to your facebook page are they going to call you are they going to email you if we understand that, then we can identify the right strategies, the right means of communication to streamline our communications to them. And technology today gives us unprecedented opportunities and advantages to do that. It's, it's incredible when you start looking at it, not as a risk, but as an opportunity, what you can find. Hmm. So, so let's talk a bit about this because we talked we talked right at the top end about sort of what what I guess is the first step. But let's talk about this term "crisis ready culture" and what else there is to do. You mentioned this idea of having a system and knowing what needs to happen when, and and getting your people trained to be able to react to it. What is what does this look like, or what's the? I guess we covered the first step. What's the second step? So the first step being that we identify the risk. Right. Yes. yes. Yeah which is the first step actually. Well, once you get buy-in, <laughs> first <laughs> right, is to get right, buy-in, then is to identify the risk. Um, I then personally, I go into a deep dive into each one of those risks because they're all different. They all have different escalation points, point of entry uh, for not just the incident to occur, but also detection, you know, who's going to be on the front end of that. Um, 
so escalation protocols. And then once we think about those things and really do exercises to look at all angles, all the different stakeholders that would potentially be impacted, what would be their expectation with of the organization in those times, uh, you know, just all of these different factors when we understand them, then we're able to first identify ways to mitigate the risk at some level. Not every risk is preventable, but there are preventable ways to, or ways to prevent risk, um, at least to some capacity. And if you don't prevent the preventable, there's no excuse. So, you know, then you just become at fault and, and completely accountable for the crisis. Uh, even if, for example, let's say cybersecurity, even if you are the victim of a cyber, of a massive and brilliant cybersecurity hack, and but you didn't do everything in your capability beforehand to mitigate that risk, even though it's not a preventable risk, you're going to be blamed for that and you're going to lose stakeholder trust as a result of that. So there's no excuse for not taking the necessary actions to prevent the preventable. And then identifying what's not preventable and planning and preparing for it. So a lot of it goes to systems and protocols internally, internally, but a lot of it also goes to communication. And I think that organizations since, you know, decades have potentially been very good at the systems part of it at, you know, there's an explosion. What do we do? Do we have an emergency management plan? Do we have a business continuity plan? That stuff has always kind of been, around and top more top of mind whereas today we have this new element of response and expectations and the fact that every single one of your stakeholders has a platform to voice their discontent and if it's emotionally relatable and impactful then that can go viral and then that becomes the subject is how terribly you are how much you don't care you know that this is happening even though you're doing everything that's you're supposed to do behind the scenes if you're not communicating with those who matter most to your business what you're doing behind the scenes you're going to fail at crisis management so there's this new dimension to crisis preparedness that needs to be very well thought through and that, like I, I think I said it earlier, when a crisis hasn't occurred, you have the luxury of time. So you have the time now to gain buy-in, to gain approvals for actual, you know, pre-drafted statements to the most of your capabilities without knowing the details, um, at, you know, before the crisis strikes, but still getting approval for main message points and strategy and all of that. And, um, and then to figure out exactly how you would execute on those comms to meet everybody's expectations. You have that luxury now that you will not have in the midst of a crisis. So it's worth, you know, going through that, those motions. Hmm. I know. I, I really like that. And I love this idea of, well, so first of all, preventing the preventable, which is a huge leadership lesson, lesson in and of itself. But then also just because it may not be present preventable doesn't mean there's not a plan, some plan for, um, let's not call it when the inevitable, because, it, let's hope it never happens. But if it does, we're sort of ready. And then we're not running by kind of, you know, the seat of our pants to try and figure out exactly, exactly what to do. I love that. There's just some huge lessons in there. Thank you. And you know, I can I I'll add one thing if, if I can. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, the crisis ready corporate culture is more than just the plan, the plan, I think that organizations, the ones who have been crisis savvy in the past, 
you know, it was common nature for them to have a plan and to file that plan away somewhere. And leadership would have solace knowing that, hey, if the worst were to happen, we have this book that we can pull out and we can follow. Today, the speed at which everything happens and all of the many different factors that can come into play to escalate the severity and the, uh, the reach of a crisis, you don't necessarily have time to fall back on the plan. So while the plan is a tremendous exercise that should be undertaken and really going deep dive into each one of those pre-identified high-risk scenarios and looking at each one, you know, on their own, which is a process and, you know, it takes time and resources and, but it's worthwhile. But the goal is to, in order to get to that crisis ready culture is really to train and empower your team, your staff on every level to understand everything from what risk looks like, what are the red flags that, you know, if you detect this, what should you do with it? What's the internal escalation process to getting it that to the right eyes to determine whether or not it is a crisis? What is the expectation or what are the expectations of their stakeholders that they own relationships with? And how can we better prepare them to meet those expectations so that it's more of an instinct than it is a fall back onto a plan and let's read step by step. That's really where you want to end up going is where the plan is like a safety blanket or a comfort blanket at the end of the table. But the team just knows intuitively the right steps to take, the right decisions to make, that they're empowered to make those decisions within their capacity and that they and that they feel confident enough to do that, competent and confident enough to do that. Hmm. I, I love that idea. And I think that's an awesome model and an, an awesome note to sort of end on, but not end, transition. Um, and we want to ask you a couple questions. We ask all of our guests the same five questions. Um, so I want to ask you a few questions if that's okay. Yeah, sure. What's the best advice you've ever received? That's a hard question. <laughs> um, oh, they get, they get harder. Yeah, it, it's hard to pin it down, right? But I think I think the thing, if you think of, if I think of advice, I think the thing that resonates and that stayed with me, I think the longest, and I don't know that it was one person or just many different mediums that I've heard this from, but it's to surround yourself with people who push and inspire you to the, be the best form of yourself. Hmm. No, it's, it's good. That's good. Let's see. We put you on the spot and we got it. Cool. They get harder from here. Actually, the next one's not that hard. What's an ideal work day look like for you? An ideal work day. Is that like my typical everyday or my dream day? Uh, I mean, I should hope that you're living your dream day. No, it's I have, Well, that was going to be my next statement. All right. Well, then there we go. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, okay, fine. So fair enough. My ideal work day is, well, whether if I'm traveling, I love it. If I'm traveling, I'm either traveling to a client or I'm for consulting or I'm traveling to a stage where I'm speaking either way best of both worlds and then when I'm home which is where I work when I'm not traveling I am working on some I'm either working on a great client project or which is you know helping them implement that crisis ready corporate culture or I'm planning some kind of great keynote that I'm about to give so <laughs> hmm. that would be my ideal day nice what are you reading right now I am reading Vlog Like a Boss by Amy Schmitter, I want to say. I think that's how you, she pronounces her last name. Hmm. And actually, I just finished it. Now I have to go back in and 
reread all my highlighted notes and actually implement her tips. <laughs> well, this, I mean, this explains some of the awesome YouTube videos that I've seen and, and watched in preparing for the interview. So now, now I know where you got it. Um, maybe I'll, I'll great book. Yeah, cool. Great book. She seems like she knows her stuff. What do you believe that most people don't? Okay, I don't know that most people don't believe this, but I know that. No, let me rephrase that. I don't know that this is something that everybody doesn't believe, but I would say that the vast majority don't believe this, that it is perfectly okay and it's actually a positive thing to be extremely selective because I'm an extremely selective person in terms of everything from my personal life to the clients that I work with to everything. I'm just, I'm just extremely selective. And I think that most people would or do maybe disagree with the level <laughs> so that they think that, you know, for the most part, it's okay to settle sometimes, or it's okay to accept, tolerate something that you don't want to tolerate or shouldn't tolerate. So yeah, I think that, that it's really okay that it changes your life when mm. you know your values and you're extremely selective. Oh, I like it. So our final question, the, um, the title of the show is radio for leader. We've talked about how, uh, good leaders and bad, or we've talked about how a variety of leaders in good ways and bad react to a crisis. But in, in your view, what makes someone a leader to begin with? Ooh, that's a good question. I would say make somebody a leader. Uh, inner strength, a deep belief in themselves and a commitment to their values, and then taking that and having the ability to use this to inspire and empower others. Hmm. That's pretty solid, pretty succinct. You were getting me worried there with thinking like, oh, that's a good question. She's not going to have an answer. That one was awesome. So, and, it, and, it, and truthfully, it encompasses what we see in the difference between, say, for example, Wells Fargo and the city of Calgary. So that was awesome. So, um, Melissa Agnes, before we wrap up, where can people um, get a hold of you, watch that vlog that's pretty awesome, um, check out some of your talks, et cetera? Thank you. Uh, MelissaAgnes.com, best place to go. Awesome. Sounds well, there, like it sounds. <laughs> there we go. And if you can't figure that one out, we will have a link in the show notes. So make sure you check those out as well. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thanks to you. It's been fun. 